gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman I've got a few things to say about Superman The Carousel Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer J. David Weeder Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Danny Sapp Cayman Stoll I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Yunus and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 58 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today is our second and final episode of Imaginary Story Month. But before I get into this episode's comic coverage, I want to mention that this episode is sponsored by InStockTrades.com. A mainstay in the, of the collected edition market, InStock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novels, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship all at great discounted prices, and most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. This month, their 12 months of end-of-the-world sales continue at in-stock trades with Crisis, which offers DC trades for 45% off. Plus, all DC trades and hardcovers for pre-order this month are 50% off. So go check them out at www.instocktrades.com. And with that, uh, that out of the way, let's move on to your answers to last episode's super question of your favorite imaginary Superman story. This one was a little difficult for me, but I'm going to have to go with John Byrne's Generation series. Uh, there's not too many imaginary stories that get to go on for more than a couple of issues. And this series of stories had six, or I'm sorry, had two different six issue miniseries and one 12 issue maxi series. Uh, he was really able to put a lot of thought into the stories, and I thought that Burns' art, while still not as good as it was when he was at his peak, like his time on X-Men, Captain America, Fantastic Four, and Superman, and mm, I'd even say his time on Namor, um, it looks much better here than it had been for a while, and of course that's just my opinion. So let's see what you all had to say. First up, over on the group page, we have Eric Mannix, who says that his favorite is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Very well. Jeffrey Taylor uh, says that his favorite is Secret Identity, which I believe we've mentioned here a few times. David Walker of the Wally West pod Flash podcast likes the Generation stuff with Batman. He enjoyed it a lot. Greg Barr writes Generations and the Silver Age version of Return to Krypton. Ian, Rime, Ro, nah, Ian Roman Pecula says that I, he hasn't read a lot in his Superman read-through, but he really did enjoy Superman Speeding Bullets, which is actually a, a cool story. Uh, it's Superman, but he landed in Gotham City and is found by the Waynes. So he's like a super Batman. It's, it, it, it looks like a really cool story. Uh, over on the fan page, 
Uh, we have Michael Poteet, who writes, War of the Worlds, the Elseworlds, that makes fantastic use of the fact that Superman made his debut the same year as Orson Welles' historic Martian Invasion broadcast in 1938. A great graphic novel well worth all Superman fans checking out. Uh, I have seen that. The art is really good on that. It really mimics the Golden Age Joe Schuster stuff. I think the only reason I didn't buy it at the time was because um, of the ending. Spoiler alert. I'm not going to tell you what it is. but And of course, yes, I didn't read it, but I did check the ending. So I'm going to have to check that out, though. David Riley writes that his choice is from Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 51, The Three Wives of Superman, where Superman marries Lois, then Lana, then Lori Lamaris. And he also says, I think I read this in either an issue of Superman Family or a 100-page Super Spectacular. Very good, David. And newest member of the Superman in the Bronze Age fan page, Praveen Natajaran which I hope I've said right. If I haven't, I apologize. Uh, he likes Superman Red Sun and Superman Distant Fires. So there we go. And thank you all for responding. Uh, I think what I'm going to do, however, is forego a super question this time. And we're just going to do one question a month and let it tie into the theme for the month. This is partially because... It's easier, and part for me anyway, and partially because it, it's hard to come up with que two questions that went with imaginary stories. When I went with "What's your favorite?" I guess I could have done "What's your What's your least favorite?" Hmm. Oh well, we'll just do one a month from now on. So I'll have a next one for you next episode. In the meantime, if you haven't answered the this month's question yet and would still like to, please feel free to do so by either emailing in at superman or at superbronze1970 at gmail.com or by going to either the Facebook fan page or group page and feel free to answer them and I will read them next time. Next up, we have an email. It's a rarity on this show. Can you believe it? This episode is, or this episode, huh? this email is from Michael Bradley of Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which you can find at GreekCrypton.com, and Green Lantern's Light at GreenLanternsLight.com. And his email subject is episode 56. So I've just heard episode 56 tonight, and I'm way behind on all my pod podcast listening. Sad face. Aw. Well, you're not that far behind. What's that, a month? I feel bad calling you out after you name-checked me and played my promo. You're welcome. But, as an FYI, Inspector Henderson first appeared on the radio show in the early to mid-40s, not Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. Makes no difference on the point you were making, but now you know... And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! With the other half being, as you have pointed out, red lasers and blue lasers, Michael. Well, actually, thank you, Michael. I did not know that. I'm not as well-versed on the radio show as I would like to be, or as people that get to cover that on a podcast um, are. So I did not know that Inspector Henderson was even in the radio show. So thank you very much for clearing that up. Uh, and finally, I'd like to welcome back a couple of podcasts that had been on, well, we'll call it an extended sabbatical. First up, Bailey's Batman Podcast has returned after being gone for several months. And Michael says that he was partially inspired by this show to switch to a bi-weekly schedule and to be a little more random in what he covers each episode instead of going month by month. Uh, which is pretty cool, although, <laughs> to be honest, he probably has more listeners because he's Michael Bailey, so it'll probably look like I'm copying him, but, you know, at least you and I will know the truth. Right, listeners? And secondly, my co-host here, J. David Weeder, has brought back Superman Forever Radio. He's not going to be strictly covering the post-Definite Crisis books anymore like he was, which I don't blame him, they were kind of eh. But he will be continuing his coverage of Superman the Animated Series. He just released one episode to mark the one year since the <laughs> previous episode, 
and then new shows are going to start appearing regularly in October. Uh, so welcome back to both of those shows, and it's great to have them back. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, lolcats, lolcats, porn, lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, this episode we're going to cover Superman Family number 200. This is a supersized $1 comic book 
with a cover date of April 1980 and an on-sale date of December 3rd, 1979. Now, this features several different stories, so I'll probably take a small break between each one. The cover of this issue depicts Superman peeling back the curtain of time uh, to see a possible future where Lois and Clark are surrounded by family and friends as they celebrate their anniversary. Now, we never know which anniversary this is, but we do find out that it's near the end of the 20th century. However, on the cover, we can see Lois and Clark, of course, uh, a girl that we will learn later is their daughter, Laura, presumably named after Clark's Kryptonian mother, Lara. Uh, we see Jimmy Olsen, Lucy Lane, uh, Superwoman, because she's older now, uh, Bruce Wayne, Dick Grayson, Perry White, uh, Pete Ross, and then Steve Lombard, Morgan Edge, and Lana Lang looking like they just stepped out of, you know, the 70s, so they don't look much different at all. So this is a special 200th issue celebration. Just imagine a day in the near or distant future at the turn of the century, a day which may or may not be as we describe it, a very special day for these members of the Superman family. Just imagine Jimmy Olsen, now editor of the Daily Planet and married to airline president Lucy Lane. Linda Danvers, now known as Superwoman, balancing heroics with a whole new career. Perry White, retired and writing his memoirs while lecturing on journalism to students of a new generation. And Lois Lane and Clark Kent, now Mr. and Mrs. Superman, with daughter Laura, about to become an, an heir to a very special legacy. Just imagine. Before Clark Kent came to work at the Daily Planet, she was there. A beautiful, resourceful, determined reporter, and in due time, love fulfilled itself in marriage, and she became Superman's wife, Lois Lane. Our first story in this issue is Unhappy Anniversary, featuring Superman's wife, Lois Lane. Written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Bob Oxner, inked by Joe Gaiella, letterer is Ben Oda, the colorist was Adrian Roy, and editor Julius Schwartz. On a pleasant morning near the end of the 20th century, Lois wakes up from her evening slumber after dreaming that she and her husband had been sleeping on a cloud, only to find out that she had in fact been sleeping on a cloud with her husband, Superman. Superman reminds Lois that today is their anniversary, which has Lofl, Lofl, which has Lois playfully complaining that he is just too perfect. He offers to change, but she tells him not to. As they land in their house and begin a quaint little makeout session, they are interrupted by their daughter, Laura, who needs a ride to school. Laura has not inherited her father's powers, which has caused her to be just as impatient and obstinate as her mother, Lois. At super speed, Superman changes to Clark and takes Laura to school while Lois gets ready for her big day. See, this isn't just her and Clark's anniversary, but this day also marks her return to full-time investigative reporting after writing columns for the previous 16 years while Laura was growing up. After a shower, Lois heads out to a doctor's appointment while using her mini-computer to record her latest column for the Daily Planet and transmitting it. An hour later, Lois leaves the doctor very upset at the news that he just gave her especially since it couldn't come at a worse time as she's finally starting to get back to the career that she loved so much. But she's got too much else to do today to let it ruin it. So she next heads off to an artist's underwater studio to pick up Clark's anniversary present. But when she arrives, she finds that the, otter, otter, that the artist has been murdered. Fortunately, the hologram portrait she had commissioned is finished, but instead of showing Laura, yeah, instead of showing Laura and Lois with Clark, it actually shows the girls with Superman instead, leading her to believe that somehow Clark's secret has been discovered. However, she finds a broken keychain that may lead to the killer, so she contacts the police about the dead artist, takes her hollow cube to a public locker at the wharf, and then heads to a car dealership that the keychain came from. In the next state, Lois arrives at Miller's New Cars, where the owner is able to easily provide the bill of sale for who bought the car with the keychain due to a lack of business. While he looks for the paperwork, he goes on about how business was good until the oil field bombing of 1982 and the fuel crisis caused 
people to buy electric cars, which is not good when you sell gas-powered cars. He finds the paper, which leads Lois to New Art Magazine in Passaic, New Jersey, which is now a ghost town after the great migration to the countryside in the 90s, when computers allowed you to work from home instead of having to go into the office. Inside the magazine offices, Lois overhears Roger and Edmund, brothers, arguing over coverage of holograms in the magazine. Roger, the editor of the magazine, wants them covered because it is a new form of art, but Edmund believes them to be junk and doesn't want them mentioned in the magazine that their dead mother used to run. When Roger decides to cover them anyway, Edmund is infuriated and not only admits to killing the hollow artist, but then tries to kill his own brother. But Lois is able to use her mini-computer to change all of the holocubes in the office into images of their mother, which distracts Edmund enough for her to hit, them, hit him over the head with some pottery. Later, as Edmund is taken away by the police, Lois realizes that the artist that created her holocube didn't discover Clark's secret. It must have been damaged during the attack and merged with another hologram portrait that he was doing of Superman. In any event, Lois doesn't change it. She just returns to the locker at the wharf and takes the holocube home. And that's the first part of the book. Um, a few notes. Page three. To my knowledge, and I could be wrong here because it's been a while since I've been in school, but I don't think clouds are really dense enough to support the weight of a person. So I don't really think she could be sleeping on a cloud. Uh, let alone both of them. Uh, page four. Wow. Laura's skirt is short even by today's comic standards. I mean, she's probably okay standing, but taking a step would probably show too much more than she wants. And it's not just this artist. This is this is something that is it's basically the same length throughout this entire issue wherever she shows up and she's actually drawn by two or three different artists, I think. Um so yeah, it's really short and for anyone that thought that Michael Turner drew Supergirl's skirt too short when he brought her back, it's actually a little bit longer than this. Page 5. Now, wait a second. It's almost the year 2000 and cars... And cars? Okay. It's almost the year 2000 and cars don't fly? I mean, that's kind of weird. Usually any comic or anything looking at the year 2000 as it's flying around in cars... But the cars here only have three wheels, so they're, I guess they're getting closer. Uh, page 7. Jimmy smoke, We see Jimmy Olsen, uh, and he's smoking a cigar and telling another reporter not to call him Chief. Wonder where he got that from. Page 10. The sake New Jersey looks like the site of some disaster. It's got cars with missing wheels and broken windows, buses with broken uh, windows, street lights that are trashed. I highly doubt that if there was a migration out of town where people actually moved to housing outside of the city, that they would have probably taken their cars with them and probably decommissioned the buses. I don't know that they would have been left behind to fall apart like this. And finally, page 12. I was going to ask how Lois knew what Edmund and Roger's mom looked like, but I guess she actually probably could have looked it up on her mini-computer, now that I think about it. So... Oh well. Uh, overall, though, this was a pretty good and complete story, told in just 13 pages. The art looks good for the most part, in spite of, of Gaella's inks. Uh, it also does a good job of introducing the world that this story takes place in, and several of the designs see here, seen here will show up later in story. Uh, the only problem I had, other than the cloud thing, is that I think Lois would have experienced a bit of trauma finding a dead body, especially since it's been 16 years since she's been quote-unquote out in the field. But she basically brushes it off like, you know, 
she just I don't know dropped her keys it like it was no big deal it's weird boy to reporter to editor of the Daily Planet. That's how this redhead scaled the ladder of success. Still confident, eagle-eyed, intelligent, and above all, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. And our next story is The Theft at Sky's Edge, featuring Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Alex Saviak, inked by Dave Hunt, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. At Metropolis Airport, Daily Planet editor Jimmy Olsen meets his wife, airline president Lucy Lane Olsen, after she has returned from picking up their present, a jade statue, for Lois and Clark in New Delhi. But when Lucy goes to show it to Jimmy, it's missing, despite it being in her possession and handcuffed to her since she bought it. So Jimmy has her recount her steps since the purchase. She bought it in New Delhi, put it in her bag, shut it, Cuffed and cuffed the bag to her wrist. She had it in her possession all the way until she went to the airport. Went through security without much hassle, although a man with a handlebar mustache did eye her suspiciously. And had nothing out of the ordinary happen as her shuttle reached escape velocity and the engine shut off. But soon, she found herself falling asleep as the vibrations from the engines caused her to relax. When she was awakened by the 30 seconds to touchdown alarm, the bag was still with her and still shut. So Jimmy runs up to the baggage claim and asks some of the other travelers, and they all say that they saw nothing out of the ordinary. So Jimmy decides to retrace Lucy's steps herself by going to New Delhi, buying another jade statue, and returning on the exact same shuttle that Lucy used. Once again, Jimmy notices the man with the hundle, with the hundle, the man with the handlebar mustache noticing him, then is led to the exact same seat Lucy was taken to on her flight by the flight attendant. After reaching escape velocity and the engine shut off, Jimmy feels the same vibrations, but is able to fight off the sleep until his seat lowers into the forward cargo hold, where the baggage handler waits with his gun. But Jimmy is able to surprise him by being awake, and is able to take down the would-be thief. Back in Metropolis, the baggage handler and the flight attendant are arrested, and the Jade statue is recovered. And presumably, the guy with the handlebar mustache is also going to get arrested. We just don't see that. Okay, now the notes are going to sound a little different because I'm using the page numbers from the book. So they just continue on as, it is, as if it's one big story. So, page 14. They use space shuttles for commercial travel. While it's not the first time I've ever seen it, it might be the first time, it, one of the first times it was actually done in a uh, as far as in a science fiction type deal, considering space shuttles were still pretty new. In fact, I don't, by this point, they haven't even had their first space shuttle launch yet. I don't, that wouldn't come until 81. So, I believe they've, at this point, they've been, it, they've more than likely been in the news. I know that they had a space shuttle Enterprise that they'd been using to do some tests with, but they uh, and they were probably building the rest of the fleet that they were going to use, but they had not had an official space launch yet. Uh, page 18. Uh, the bald guy with the mustache that I mentioned looks a lot like Wit from the post-crisis continuity and has just as many lines of di- and has just as many lines of dialogue. The difference is that he doesn't have a word balloon with an exclamation point. That would have been cool, but... Anyway, page 19. So, did anyone notice that when I said that the engine shut off while Lucy was on the plane, on the shuttle, but then she fell asleep due to the vibrations of the engines? Yeah, that stuck out like a sore thumb for me with the sto- when I was reading the story. And it is the most obvious clue that something went wrong, but it actually, out of all of them, it doesn't get mentioned until much later. Uh, page 25. So does this mean that they now have two jade statues? Because that could be expensive. I wonder if they'll keep one. We never see more than one at a time. And Lucy is very insistent on making sure they still find the statue that she got. So maybe they're going to return the one that Jimmy bought? I don't know. It would be cool to have. I mean, what is Mel, right? Uh, 
Overall, this was a pretty good story too. But the one thing I don't understand, and what actually is one of the things that always gets me about several different works of fiction like this or just about any Superman story featuring Lois or and or Jimmy or you know some TV shows even from this time period why would Jimmy do this himself instead of just alerting the authorities I mean he's a newspaper editor so he hasn't actually been in the field for a while and there's not really a reason for him to risk his life for this but if he didn't, there wouldn't be a nice little story. Also, we have some interesting art, but this is early Saviak, uh, so it feels like Hunt's inks uh, overpowered it a little. I don't know if that's just the way Hunt inks, because I've seen him ink other people, and he usually does a better job of blending in, or if perhaps it was an editorial decision since Saviak was so new. Maybe they just needed him to kind of solidify stuff. I'm not sure. Now, a glimpse at the man behind the mild-mannered facade of the gentleman reporter. When he's not being the mighty Superman, what is he being? For the answer, treat yourself to this tale in a series that shows the drama, the excitement, and the humanity of the private life of Clark Kent. All right, and our next story for for the private life of Clark Kent is Clark Kent's Frantic Fan, written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger, inked by Vince Coletta, yay, lettered by Ben Oda, colorist Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. After he drops off Laura at the Galaxy 2 building for school, yes, it's not at a school, it's at Galaxy 2 building, Clark heads off to an interview with the mayor, and then he's going to pick up Lois's anniversary gift. After activating his floating minicam, which apparently glows too, because they keep a nice little light indication thing around it, Clark suddenly finds himself being accused of blackmail by an elderly woman named Amanda Boot. After the officers accompanying Amanda explain her blackmail claims, she produces a photo of Clark handing her a piece of paper that she claims says, Pay me $200 or I'll make your secret public. But Clark recognizes the woman and points out that if the image is enlarged and enhanced, you can see that she's merely signing an autograph. So the officers take her away and Clark proceeds to his interview. While Clark is grilling the mayor about appointing his wife's social secretary as commissioner of parks, Lara is watching the report with a gentleman named Ed. But it's time for her to get to her history class. Unfortunately, she's lost her electric stylus, so she asks to borrow one of Ed's, and he agrees and says it's in his bottom drawer. Unfortunately, the drawer is stuck. Thinking that it might be locked, he runs up with the key just as Lara is able to force it open. Uh, exclaiming that it must be a pretty crummy lock since it's snapped off so easily. About an hour later, Clark is leaving City Hall, but has to keep his camera on while the guys at WGBS work out a few bugs in the system, which means that they get to watch as Clark finds himself being kidnapped by Amanda at gunpoint. Clark realizes that he could end things immediately, even with the camera on, but Amanda seems to be a very lonely woman on the edge of a nervous breakdown, and he doesn't want to push her over the edge. So while Clark follows her orders and drives to her home, the studio director calls the police. Clark continues to talk to her, and when they reach her home in the slums, she starts to open up about her son, who doesn't seem to have any time for her. Unfortunately, at this point, the police start to show up in a helicopter. But Clark spots them, and to prevent his progress with Amanda from being interrupted, he forces the copter to land with a little heat vision to the rotor blades. Then he turns around and confronts Amanda. Apparently, she sees Clark as her son, who ignores her. When he, caused her, when he ignored her and caused her to get arrested earlier in the day, it angered her. It's really her son that she's mad at, but she can't hurt her son. After all, what mother can hurt her son? So she was going to hurt Clark instead. Clark can't be her son, but he does offer to be her friend. So she gives her the gun, and they walk back to his car as the narration states that Clark will try, her find, will try to find her son tomorrow and heal the rift in their lives. Alright, 
I've only got one note on this story besides my little overall. Uh, page 32. All right. How does heat vision to the rotor blades force a helicopter to land? Now, I could see it a little more forcefully by actually melting the blades and causing it to land that way, but I wouldn't think Clark would do that. So if someone can explain how applying a little heat to a rotor blade will force it to land, please email at me at superbronze1970 at gmail.com. I would really like to know because it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, now, overall, this is probably one of the weakest stories to me. Um, I'm glad Clark was able to help Amanda, but how was she able to get the gun after her apparent arrest just about an hour earlier? And did she not notice the floating, glowing camera following Clark everywhere? But anyway, still, it was an interesting story, and we get the first hint of Lara's burgeoning powers. And Schaffenberger's art is rather solid here, but Coletta's inks don't really help it much. Maybe there's a little bit of fine detail he's he adds to some of the faces, but Schaffenberger's backgrounds are usually a little bit better than just plain, and of course Coletta's inks just make them really plain. I really hope he never inked George Perez, because that would have been terrible. Born in Argo City, the surviving planetary chunk of the destroyed world of Krypton, Kara was rocketed to Earth when Kryptonite destroyed her home and its people. Acquiring mighty powers under Earth's yellow sun and lower gravity, she became Supergirl, and later, Earth's first and only Superwoman. Alright, and our Superwoman story is Something Swims in the Time Stream, written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Wynne Mortimer, inked by Benny Coletta, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Gene D'Angelo, and edited by Julie Schwartz. In the skies above Florida, but apparently returning from a mission in space, Superwoman spots an offshore tidal energy station about to be slammed by a tidal wave. So she swoops down, lifts it out of harm's way, then repairs it, saves the engineers who have fallen from the station, and then quickly flies off to Tallahassee. Meanwhile, at the Florida State Penitentiary, a prisoner is being led to his execution, but is saved at the last minute by Governor Linda Danvers who signs a pardon thanks to evidence that Superwoman was able to provide. Next up, Linda switches back to Superman. Superman? Wow. Next up, Linda switches back to Superwoman and heads home to pick up some equipment that she had ordered. After some small talk to her current beau, who is Captain Shadow since I doubt even the creators know who he is, she takes the equipment and heads skyward, breaking the time barrier and heading back to the past where she uses this equipment to record the first time that Lois Lane met Clark Kent. She then heads back to the time stream and heads forward in time, capturing several significant moments in their lives unknowingly. But also unknowingly to her, she's being followed as she does this. After her making her final stop at Clark and Lois's wedding day, she returns to the time stream and is attacked by this strange creature. She tries to retaliate, but when she does, the creature disappears and reappears in a bit of a time loop that allows it to repeat the event over and over. Then the creature hits her with a mental blast, which allows her to see that it attacks time travelers for sustenance. Determined not to be one of its victims, she leads the creature to the end of time, where the creature loses control of its time manipulation powers, causing it to literally turn to dust. Then Superwoman heads back to the past so she can go to Clark and Lois' anniversary party. Alright, on this story, page 33, it says the story starts in the skies over Florida, but the background on this panel, uh, behind Superwoman, the background is black with white stars and what appears to be a missile or a rocket. And yet on the same page, on the rest of the splash, uh, when, the, when we see the title Energy Station, the sky is blue like daytime. So I'm not sure if it was supposed to be just a little extra art thing for Superwoman, or 
if it was actually supposed to be part of the story and it wasn't supposed to be night, or if the caption was just wrong, or what happened there. Page 37, interesting look for what appears to be a video camera. It looks like a small orange bazooka. I mean, it's got a handle with a trigger and everything. Uh, and page 41, the time creature actually kind of reminds me of a wampa from Empire Strikes Back. So if you can fig- see that, you can see what, these, what this time creature looks like. Overall, one of the pluses for this story is it's the only one that actually involves any superheroics other than, you know, Clark using his heat vision on that helicopter. Uh, so it was really nice to see and kind of broke up some of the, well, I'm going to call it kind of monotony because when you're reading a Superman-type book, you expect some superpowers or something super to happen at some point, and we just hadn't seen that yet. So it was really cool to see a superhero here. And usually the other feature that they have in this book that does superpowers is Superboy, but by this point, not only was he about to get his own series, um, it would have been kind of hard to put Superboy in here, considering this is the future. Uh, another problem is that in this story, um, technically, depending on retcons, uh, there have been stories, of course, uh, where Superboy met Lois Lane when they were kids. Now, because of how things, how they like to work things, Superboy met just about anyone that Superman knows when they were kids. Uh, just a couple episode or two ago, you heard J. David Weeder talk about the first meeting of Superboy and Aquaboy, Aquaman. There were back in the Silver Age, there were meetings between Superboy and Jimmy Olsen, Robin. He met Bruce Wayne on more than one occasion, as when he was a kid. Um, he met Lois. He met well Lana. Um, I'm, he's run, he ran into a younger Perry White. Um, so, yeah, he's met just about everybody. So technically, this is, wouldn't have been their first meeting. But with any recons, I guess that this works. So we're going to go with it. Um, overall, though, while I like Superwoman's plans for Clark and Lois's present, one of these, it's a time travel story, and the time travel stories kind of confuse me. Especially since one of the big rules that DC was using around this time is that you can't appear in a time period if you actually already exist there in the regular time. So, how could she get the wedding video if, more than likely, she was probably there as a guest, or at the very least, somewhere being Supergirl at that time? It just doesn't make sense. It's, it's, uh, oh. My brain died. Anyway, is it confusing? Yes. And our final chapter of this issue long story is Celebration, featuring Mr. and Mrs. Superman. Written by Jerry Conway, and again, penciled by Bob Oxner, and inked by Joe Gaella, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Lois and Clark arrive home at roughly the same time after their rather eventful days, and we learn that the news that Lois got from her doctor that has upset her so much is that she's pregnant again. This excites Clark, but not Lois, who had already put her career on hold for 16 years, and just when she was about to finally get back to that career, now she's pregnant and she doesn't want to have to put it on the side burner all over again. She wants to be more than just a wife and a mother. As she enters their bedroom and slams the door, Laura Laura returns home in time to welcome Jimmy, Lucy, and Perry White, spotting them in their car, even though it is quite a ways away down the road. Upstairs, Clark realizes that Lois has had to sacrifice a lot, being a mother, especially since Laura doesn't have superpowers. Speaking of Laura, we switch back to her as she and the guests enter the house, and she spots the holocube that shows her and Lois with Superman. Wanting to protect her father's secret, Laura runs into the room and locks the holocube in a closet. But she does this at super speed. This, combined with the earlier incidents, lead her to realize that she, that as a half-Terran, half-Kryptonian, she must just be developing her powers later, like puberty. And she cannot wait to tell her parents. Back in their bedroom, Lois and Clark continue talking, and Clark decides that this time 
he'll be the one to put his career aside and be a full-time father and Superman so that Lois can continue her career, which also works out because his present to her is a private jet, complete with tie-ins to all the satellite relays for worldwide communications and a specially designed solar-powered jet turbine, the perfect vehicle for that investigative reporter on the go. Lois appears to be about to quote-unquote thank him you know what I'm talking about. But Superwoman shows up to give them her present in secret, since it would be pretty hard to explain how the governor of Florida was able to videotape the most memorable moments of their lives. And our story ends with Lois and Clark in a loving embrace, surrounded by friends, family, gifts, and a cake. Page 46, I think this is the best piece of art on the whole book. The image of the angry Lois and the shocked Clark is great and includes some great details. We see some different angle for Clark's glasses. Um, it's just really highly detailed on their faces, and the coloring also makes it a little more awesome. So, it's really cool. Page 49, I like Laura figuring out that she has superpowers. I would have loved to have returned to this imaginary story to see her parents' reaction, but, you know, as a one-off type story, it, it does... Well, it actually leaves a seed in case they wanted to go back. They, To my knowledge, they never did, though. But we'll see. If we still got a lot of episodes left in this story, or in this show, we could... We might run across it at some point. Page 50. How was Clark able to afford to purchase Lois a private jet on a reporter's salary? And how did he park it in the driveway without her seeing it? And for that matter, how is it legal to have a jet in the driveway? Now, maybe things are different in this fake turn of the century, or this imaginary version of the turn of the century, but I just don't see them allowing jets outside of the sky or airports. So, Overall, though, I thought it was a nice, pat little ending to our tale. I actually like that this time Clark is giving up reporting to raise the new child, as I'm sure that this wasn't typical even in the 80s. Although I guess it does make him a Mr. Supermom, doesn't it? Uh, overall, I thought that this was a fun issue. Uh, the look into the future is pretty consistent, which is helped by the fact that Jerry Conway wrote all of the stories in this issue and that gives it a singular vision plus he's able to incorporate most of the expository info dumps about you know how things have changed since the then current time of December 1979 without it seeming out of the out of place or wasting an entire panel to have a bunch of captions explain things that is for the most part there are a few occasions such as when a security guard doesn't recognize Lucy Lane in the Jimmy story. And she mentions that it's understandable that you wouldn't recognize me, considering that I used to be a nurse and then I got this job. And then that I. or a waitress? Or a nurse? I think she's a nurse. And the patient she had um, died and left her with the airport, or something to that effect. Uh, she really didn't need to explain all that, but. So stuff like that, that, but that's only there's only like two or three instances where something like that happens. So it's not bad. Um, let's see. As for the art, it was consistently pretty good. None of it was really great, but none of it was terrible either. And everything and everyone were on was on model for the entire issue. So I don't have any complaints about it. The only problem I have is with the fashions. Now I understand that trash, fashion trends go in a cycle, and currently we're stepping uh, in our time. We've started getting out of some sev of fake '70s fashion and back into some fake '80s fashion. Well, that's fine, and occasionally there's some retro stuff to flashback to, like the '60s maybe. Whatever. 
but basically in this issue everyone looks like they're from the late 70s with just a few minor changes to give the outfits a slightly different look. Clark's suit, for instance, is a 70s suit, but instead of buttons on the front, they look like latches. Um, and this is for the entire book, it's not just one artist. Uh, there's People are still wearing bell bottoms, uh, they've got 70s hairstyles, those artist guys, which I know artists kind of dress weird anyway, so a lot of the time it seems, but they're wearing, you know, 70s neckerchiefs and bell bottoms, and one has that long mop top hair, and the other one had a afro, and Laura has a 70s style weird pigtail thing going on. That they they didn't wear that they only wore when they were sixteen back then they don't really do that now outside of porno, um, yeah just just the fashions and wow Lois wore a lot of pink, that's the colorist I know but whew, the woman had pink pants a pink shirt with white trim and a pink purse and then she's also wearing pink clothing in the hollow cube portrait and I think Laura is wearing a similar costume to her outfit to what she's wearing in the present too so it's weird in any event yes the styles was just weird it just looks like trying to keep it definitely 70s in fact Ed from the Clark Kent story that was hanging out with Laura he's wearing a leisure suit so yeah um, in fact, I don't remember that having much different. Maybe the buttons were at latches again, but still. Uh, and then the only other problem I have is with the ages of the characters. Now, this story takes place roughly 20 years ahead of what was then considered the present. Um, and with it being an imaginary story, they didn't have to keep the characters at a certain age, they would allow them to age, which they normally did on these imaginary stories to get, you know, let the characters age normally. So we're thinking 20 years. That would put, now at this point, Superman and Lois are supposed to be roughly 29, 28, 29. So that would put them around 48, 49. Jimmy would be I'm thinking early 20s in the present. Um, I don't think he's in his late teens anymore, so early 20s. Same thing with uh, Supergirl. Linda could, is like right around 20, which means that they're right around 40 at this point. And of course, Perry, who's probably 50, in his 50s or 60s in the quote-unquote present, would be in his 70s or 80s. Now, the only person that seems to have actually aged right is Perry. Jimmy's a little older when Bob Oxner draws him and gives him a bit of a chin, but the Private Life of Jimmy story has him looking basically exactly the same, but with maybe a squarer jaw. So instead of being about 40, he looks like he's maybe between 25 and 30. Kara should be about 40 like I said and she actually looks basically the same as she does in the present Lois and Clark look exactly the same um, there's no gray added to the hair color there's no wrinkles added they look exactly the same like a be beautiful young couple also keep in mind that they have a 16 year old daughter and keep in mind that if Lois and Clark should be 50 years old, roughly, Lois is pregnant again, which makes her pregnancy a bit of a miracle. So there's all that. I guess they wanted you to just not not kind of think about that, but yeah. Um, but on the plus side, it is interesting that it's cameo appearances, but we do see Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. Lana Lang shows up, but she does, never looks happy. She just has a stare on her face both times that we see her. And, yeah. All right, next up we're going to go over the ads real quick. First, inside the front cover, we have Vroom. 
Superhero cars mean great fun that fits in your pocket from Corgi. And we see that all sorts of characters get new get little vehicles. We have a Daily Planet news truck featuring Superman on the side with a Daily Planet headline of Superman Saves the World. We have the Daily Planet news helicopter, which looks a lot like the helicopter from Superman the movie. We have a van with Superman on the side that and the Superman logo. And we have the Supermobile. Also, we have what I can only call the Shazam Mobile because it's a Captain Marvel vehicle. I don't know why he would need one, but okay. Uh, then, of course, Wonder Woman gets a car. And then you've got the, for Batman, you've got basically the 60s version of the Batmobile from the TV show. You've got the Batcopter, which again might be from the 60s show, as well as a Bat motorcycle. The Joker gets a car that with the light on top almost looks like a hearse or an ambulance. The Penguin gets a little, you know, gets a little roadster with an umbrella. And of course, there's a police car. And this is one of the first ads I ever saw when I started reading DC comics that weren't from The Death of Superman. So this ad holds a special place in my heart. And I can't tell who drew it. But I'm going to go with Neil Adams, maybe. It's hard to tell. Uh, let's see, the next ad... is... From MPC, this set of MPC wheels gets you this set of MPC wheels free. And basically, you can buy, you can buy a whole set of... Oh, no, okay. On every MPC 1980 annual car model kit, you'll find Golden Wheels tokens. When you save up 20, we'll send you your choice of a free MPC model 1980 Camaro Z28, Monza, Monte Carlo, Duster, or GMC El Diablo. All weird-looking cars. So, yes, car model kits from MPC, available in the United States only. Uh, the next ad page is Super Gifts and Gimmicks, which has the stuff like this Venus flytrap and moneymaker machine, x-ray glasses, a bald wig, that kind of thing. Fake chicken. Because everybody loves a fake chicken. Don't you? Uh, let's see. Good night. Ah, here we go. We have a face full-page ad for Sea Monkeys. Only a dollar ninety-five plus postage, and they don't look anything like. Ah, these cartoons are imaginative and do not represent actual sea monkeys. No, duh. Uh, next, we get a two-page spread ad for the movie 1941, obviously featuring John Belushi. And it's the full painted ad where you can see the Chinese theater showing Dumbo and a bunch of explosions and a Ferris wheel busting. Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures present a team production of a Steven Spielberg film, 1941, starring Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Gary, Murray Hamilton, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Toshiro Mifune, Warren Oates, Robert Stack, Treat Williams, Nancy Allen, Eddie Dezine, uh, Bobby De DeChico, Diane Kay, Slim Pickens, Wendy Jo Sperber, Lionel Stander, and let's see, any other cool... Directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who also brought you Back to the Future. Uh, coming this Christmas to a theater near you. And as I recall, didn't that movie bomb? I think that failed at the box office. Something terrible. Uh, the next ad page is, uh, we get a half-page ad for Grit. And the bottom page ad is a house ad for Adventure Comics, issue 469, Because You Demanded It. The senses-shattering origin of the Solar Sentinel Starman begins here. 
And extra, all-new action of the pliable Plastic Man, on sale throughout the cosmos December 20th. You have been warned. If you miss it, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Now, this is the Starman from another planet. Um, I think Ditko worked on this. But uh, he's a he's Starman. He's from a completely different planet. And the people hate him, from what I've seen from the ads. I haven't actually read the book. But yes, it's not the Starman from the 80s, or from the 90s. It's not the Golden Age Starman. It has nothing to do with that Starman. Next is a full-page ad for a subscription to Superman Family. Each issue features adventures of Supergirl, Mr. and Mrs. Superman, who, when it's not this issue, is the Earth 2 version. The Private Life of Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen. That's right, five super stories in every issue of Superman Family. Normally, you'd pay $6 for six issues, but by subscribing, you get those six issues for $5. That's like getting one issue free. So that's pretty cool. And let's see. I can't believe you can get a full year for just a little bit more than what you pay for a single issue of a comic now. Uh, next, we get another one of those... Uh, multi-purpose ads where you get tons of different little ads in the thing. Uh, you can fly your own mini helicopters, sports planes, motorized and foot-launched hand gliders. You can go comic book shopping from Robert Bell in Coral Springs, Florida. A karate class. Pen pals. Exchange letters. Find out about different people and places in the USA. Share interests and hobbies. Someday, maybe meet. Yeah. Uh, chemical light sticks. Uh, more comics. Space hoop. An atlas body. All that kind of real petrified wood. And the last quarter of the page. The, the superstars of comics are superstars of DC, too. No. The superstars of comics are superstars of TV, too. Don't miss any of the DC heroes in animated action. On APC TV, there's Super Friends. And also, Plastic Man. And of course, on CBS TV, there's the new adventures of Batman. Next is a full-page house ad to stuff your stocking with excitement. Remember, I said this issue came out in December. Uh, it's the DC Superstar Holiday Special, which... Um, our last Christmas episode, J. David Weeder and I covered the Superboy, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes story from this issue. Uh, featuring 12 tremendous talents. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Frank Miller, Dick Giordano, Paul Levitz, Robert Kaniger, Denny O'Neill, Dan Atkins, Robert Fleischer, Robert, no, Michael Fleischer, Dick Ayers, Bob Rosakis, Romeo Tangal, and Steve Mitchell. Join the world's greatest heroes in a quest of a dream. Featuring Batman, Superboy, Sergeant Rock, Jonah Hex, and the House of Mystery. Uh, on sale everywhere December 6th, DC Comics, where the action keeps on coming. So that's really cool. I love these little house ads. Next ad, we're almost at the end of the issue now, is the 132 Roman Soldiers set. That looks like it was from an ad from the 40s. So it's probably the same ad that just changed the price because now it's two dollars ninety-eight cents. Uh, the back, uh, the inside back cover is for monogram model kits uh, for different kinds of airplanes and trucks and cars. Some of them are snap tight. Some you need glue. And the back cover is an ad for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. The human adventure is just beginning. Now playing at a theater near you. Alright, and finally, we have the Hostess ad. Once again, I've been lucky enough to find another issue in which Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner did not do the darn ad. So, once again, you're stuck with me. This time up, we get Batman and Professor Plutonium. Batman has received a tip that a criminal called Professor Plutonium will strike at midnight from Gotham Harbor. I wonder what the tipster meant when he said that this was my golden opportunity to see the professor in action. 
And then Batman pulls up in his bat boat in the harbor. He must have spotted me. He's pulling out, but the bat boat is faster. And over the loudspeaker, Professor Plutonium says, You'll never catch me! Tonight, all of America's gold reserves will disappear in a puff of smoke. If I can't have it, I'll destroy it. Oh yeah. So that's it. I must stop him before he bombs Fort Knox. Hey, Professor, how about a midnight snack? Ha ha ha, the only thing that tempts me is gold. Oh yeah. Gold? Try these. Watch this. Golden sponge cake? Why, these are Hostess Twinkie Cakes. Cream filling, too. Oh, boy. This sea air really gave me an appetite. Oh, yeah. I also hope you develop a taste for prison food, Professor. And you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie Cakes. And actually, that's going to just about do it for this episode. We won't, we don't have a Superboy in the Bronze Age because this episode's going to be a little long, thanks to my coverage of this long, extra-length story. Um, but if you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, please send us an email at superbronze1970 at gmail dot com and join us again in just two weeks as we begin our month-long salute to Halloween with the first episode of Spooky Month. We'll see you then. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman in the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. Supermanhomepage.com